Welcome to a special episode of Stories of Scotland, where we are going on a journey to talk about a new exhibition at the National Library of Scotland. Yes, I went to the National Library of Scotland and I interviewed the curator Ulrika Hogg about the Skial exhibition. It's on the incredible work of John Francis Campbell. We love John Francis Campbell because he collected Gaelic folklore. And he was also intrigued by the natural environment. So what we'll do is play the interview and then jump in to tell you a little bit about thermography. That sounds like a fun and relevant fact. (laughs) Oh, I do love a fun yet relevant fact, Annie. Yay! All right, so let's dive into this interview. We're sitting in a grand room of the National Library of Scotland on a beautifully sunny day. Thank you so much for speaking to me, Ulrike. Please, would you be able to introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm Ulrike Hogg and I'm a curator in the Division of Archives and Manuscript Collections. Um, My special responsibilities are Gaelic manuscripts, medieval and early modern, and music manuscripts. That sounds fascinating. So what do you find exciting about your job? It's the variety of work you get. We're we're responsible for quite a lot of things in the division. We we acquire manuscripts and we catalogue them, but we also do exhibitions. We deal a lot with outside people and we get visitors groups. So there's a lot of outreach as well. So you could almost say no two days are the same. I guess just as no two manuscripts are the same. No, the the variety of the material is brilliant as well. There's so much interesting stuff. So could you tell me a wee bit about the new exhibition? What's it about? It's called Skiel, or Story, Folk Tales from the Scottish Highlands. And it's about the collecting activity of John Francis Campbell of Isla, who in, in around 1859-1860 began to collect Gaelic folk tales in the Scottish Western Highlands and Islands. And we're focusing on how he actually, how exactly he did it and what his motivations were, what inspired him and why he was so interested in doing it. We were trying to show that he was inspired by continental and international fairy tales and that he saw the parallels between them and Gaelic folk tales. But in his times, there was a rise in interest in folk tale studies, you know, comparing international folk tales with each other and comparing different elements and characters. And Campbell himself had this vision that parts of fairy tales were washed up like driftwood on the ocean. They were being carried around the world and washed up on the shores of different countries and were then reused and put together again into stories. And yet you could still recognize parts of it. And he was aware that Gaelic folk tales were not really known outside the Highlands because of the language barrier. So he wanted to collect them and present them to the world to make them appreciated and also to show that Gaelic storytelling was quite similar to international storytelling, that they were all part of world story traditions. And then his other motivation emerged as he went along because he realized that storytelling was dying out in the Highlands. It was under threat in many areas and for religious reasons or just for 
just a lack of interest, the people moving away. And he said he felt himself that if he didn't do it soon, then all the memory of stories, or a lot of um, story memories would be lost because nothing was written down. It was all oral tradition, and all these stories were only kept alive if somebody told them to other people. And if all this died out, then the stories would go with the people. So we're trying to show these two strands in his motivation and general sort of mood of the whole thing. There was a slight melancholy atmosphere, but he was also, because he was himself, quite a jovial guy. And it's quite an interesting, fun exhibition as well. Did his work contribute to the Celtic revival, the 19th century increased interest in Gaelic culture? Well, he was one of the people who initiated it as well. He he contributed to the new Gaelic journals and so on. But um, I could imagine it did, but that wasn't really his prime motivation. So John Francis Campbell was quite uniquely placed to be able to do this. Could you tell me more about his background, please? Yes, he was a Gaelic-speaking Scottish aristocrat. He was born in Edinburgh but brought up on Isla. And he was left in the company of the family piper, who was a Gaelic speaker. And he taught him his Gaelic, also Campbell says, and he took him round all the villages and the people. And through him, he learned how to talk to everyone, not to have any sort of delusions of grandeur, but he could actually speak to anybody he encountered at the same level at that person. So people trusted him and were quite willing to give him stories, or when they heard his name mentioned by others, they would open up to his collectors and other people. It's such a contrast to what I imagine when I think about Highland and Island aristocrats in the 19th century. Yes, yes, he was certainly considered to be one of them. He wasn't an absentee sort of person, although he later was. But, I mean, he spent his childhood on Isla, and then then the family lost the Isla estate, and he was taken to London and being looked after there. But when he returned to Isla, he was still considered to be one of the people there. They still accepted him. I find him really interesting. Born to a landowning family who lose their estate, so he's then being brought up in different places. In some ways, he's kind of like a piece of driftwood himself. Yes, exactly, yes. (laughs) So could we talk a wee bit about the exhibition and the type of objects that you've got in it? We're showing some of his manuscripts that show how he collected stories. And we have a few, well, we have selected a few story contributors. And there's one man from Mingulay whose portrait Campbell drew, Rory Rum, he calls him. I'm Roderick McNeil, and we show this and a story and a description of the man. We want to show that in Campbell's collecting, in Campbell's archive, many of these people come alive. They're either described in detail by others, or um, Campbell in his diaries describes them, how he came across them, how there was a bit of banter, how they were sometimes quite disrespectful, but he thought it was really funny. He just took it in his stride. And then how he really took an interest in these individuals and then he kept all the Gaelic versions of their stories and he himself translated them and then when he later published them he credited the original storyteller in his book so we just wanted to show how from collecting to or sort of getting a first impression of the storyteller their story made its way to the published version 
and then we show some of his of the work, works that inspired him initially, like the Grimm's fairy tales, for example, and the Arabian Nights. Now, One Thousand and One Night, I think it's called now. These were some major influences on him in his childhood, so we wanted to show how he started comparing things even then. Then we show some of his artwork. We show the original artwork in some cases, which he sort of just left as he painted. He was a great, talented watercolor artist and sketch artist, you know, pencil sketches. They're, they're very stunning. The way he captures the mood of a landscape, you know, getting exactly the color of the water right and the, the rock faces and the heather. and the, So it, it's absolutely stunning. It's, it's like photography. Even when you blow them up, when you have a digital image and then show it on a bigger screen, it's got a lot of depth in it. It's amazing. So a few of these are shown in the original, and then a lot of them are made into graphic design panels. So just to contribute to the mood of the exhibition. Now, John Francis Campbell used some quite uncommon materials in his paintings, didn't he? Yes, he had a phase where he was experimenting with peat, soot and whiskey. So we have a few drawings and he, he commented that the, especially the suit was quite a nice thing to work with. You know, the paper took it well and it didn't blur through. So, <laughs> so that's Pete straight out of a bog, aye? It sounds like it, yes. And the suit, he, he, there's one painting of Rob Roy's cottage in Lenshira, which when he visited it still had a roof on it and was still more like a cottage. I think it's just a ruin of a few walls now. And he said he had taken the suit from the rafters, you know, just above the fireplace. So he had scraped off a little bit and then he, he drew the cottage with that, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful to be making an illustration of the building with soot from the fireplace. Mm-hmm. Do they smell? We did sniff them, but we couldn't make out any smell of whiskey. I don't know, it's very disappointing, actually. Wow. Well, I, I think for anyone who works with historical objects, it's really part of your duty sometimes to just give an artifact a really good sniff. It's how we understand our culture. <laughs> yes, 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 a lot of people do that. <laughs> but no, unfortunately, no. So what are the highlights of that collection? I think some of the portraits I find very moving. We have one portrait which is on a wall panel enlarged. It's of a, a lady he, he painted in Ireland and she is 110 at the time. She was 110 in the year 1863 and her name is Honor Keneally. And the way he drew her is very wistful and she looks into the distance. There's another one, Rory Rum, who I mentioned before, the man from Mingulli. These two elderly people have a very insightful sort of detached expression on their faces, which I find very moving because they were tradition bearers. So you can only wonder what what they were thinking and what was going on in their heads. You know, when you spoke to them, they would give you a story. And when they were not speaking, they, they looked so so thoughtful and interesting. I think this feeds into how Campbell references his folklore in his books. He tells you not just the names of the people who told him the stories, but also where they're from and a little of their history and then the circumstances for the situation where they're conveying the story to him. It's clear that Campbell didn't feel the folklore belongs to him, but rather to the whole community. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So for me, being from the Highlands, it's absolutely amazing to see this region represented in the National Library of Scotland. How important is it for the National Library of Scotland to be doing this kind of work? Well, one of the speakers at our opening night said that the National Library was really acting as a national library now by also including the Highlands in a major exhibition. Well, I think we're filling a gap. The Highlands have been a bit underrepresented in our outreach and collecting. Some of it is out of our control, of course, but we're quite keen to highlight areas that we don't often show. I think it's it's about ensuring that you have as much of a geographical stretch as possible. And when you notice that there have been less exhibition objects from the Highlands and Islands, it's finding a way to remedy that to ensure that they've got representation. Yes, uh-huh. yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And how does it feel to have Gaelic centre stage? Oh, we're very proud of that, yes. Especially since this is the first time we've built up an exhibition which is fully bilingual. I think we're hoping to send a good message out to the Gaelic community and also to the world at large that we're including this and giving this equal prominence in our exhibition. So back on to the life of John Francis Campbell. I think one of the really interesting things about him is his interest in the natural world, especially when we view story and landscape as so interconnected, especially in the Highlands and Islands. Could you tell me a little about this work? Um, He was very interested in geology. He spent a long time collecting rock rubbings, which told him about glaciers and the movement of land masses and the exposure to the elements. You know, apparently you can draw a lot of conclusions from that. So we've got all these rubbings, which meant a lot to him, but are quite difficult to analyze for a lay person, I think. Then he was interested in sunlight and the measurement of how many hours of sunlight a place had. He devised a, a special machine to measure this. Then he also, when he went up north, there's a lot of images of glaciers. So they could be interesting for comparison with nowadays, now that these things are melting. And they could be of interest to environmental research. Yes, he preserved a lot of the landscapes as they were at the time. So again, to compare them with what they're like now would be quite interesting. Also, how they are built up now and... And what I mentioned before, the cottage of Rob Roy, when he drew it, it was still intact. and You could still walk inside. And when you see it now, there's just a few crumbling walls and grass growing in the middle. So he, um, yes, he, he was interested in just showing the environment around him. But the mountains were a particular interest, I think, just the, the way they had developed. And... I love that because there's so many traditional stories about how the mountains were formed the folklore of giants and all that. It's all connected. Yes, that, that link between the landscape and the stories, yes, that also appears in his diaries. You know, the, he, he writes down how an old man came and wanted to tell him a story and then they sat down together and the man said, do you see this rock over there and this one? And this is where certain heroes of the Fenians lived or, or, what, or did some, you know, they had some connection with these heroes. So it was still alive in the minds of the people how these landmarks had had come to life and had developed. I find this massively 
insightful. We've got this kind of moment in time where John Francis Campbell is trying to keep the tradition alive by writing it down so that it can be spread more widely. For me, it feels like some parts of the chains of generational storytelling have been broken and it's works like this that allow us to relink with our past. And I think that's very true of diaspora communities as well. It's all about finding ways to relink with your culture. Campbell wrote extensively and in detail about the many things that interested him, and he filled many scrapbooks and real books on information about glaciation, meteorology, thermography, solar physics, travel, and astronomy. And he was also a solid watercolour painter. A lot of his books have really wonderful little watercolour illustrations by him. Several of these watercolours are in the exhibition as well, which is amazing. I love a good watercolour. Campbell enjoyed using his knowledge to create an experiment. And over his lifetime, he made many scientific devices. But he wasn't just sort of experimenting in his shed. Campbell was a real scholar. He wrote an entire 460-page book on the subject of thermography. Judging by the fact that I've never actually heard of thermography, I'm going to guess that his book was not a bestseller. Not among Scottish historians and podcasters, no. But in the scientific world at the time, he was very respected and his research experiments and inventions were all highly regarded. His most well-known invention was a result of his extensive experimentation and research into thermography, which, as his 460-page long book explains, is the conversion of thermal radiation, so heat, onto a surface. Essentially, taking a picture of heat. If you think of something like infrared goggles, when you're turning heat into something that you can visualise, well, this is what Campbell was doing with thermography. But this is incredible, considering he was alive in the 1800s. His focus was on the sun's energy and how to capture it and record it. But Jenny, how does one record the sunshine in the 1850s? Great question. Campbell spent many years developing his sunshine recorder, also known by the much cooler name of a heliograph. And in 1853, he revealed his final device. It was wonderfully simple and, if I may say so myself, very aesthetically pleasing. Basically, he mounted a colourless glass crystal ball of about 10 centimetres in diameter in a wooden bowl. One face of the ball points out towards the open sky and the other towards the wooden bowl. As the sun passes overhead, the crystal ball focuses its rays to an intense spot which burns a line on the wooden bowl behind it. And so, as long as the sun is out, the device records the hours of bright sunshine in a day, with the result being a line of various degrees of burnt wood, depending on the strength of the sun during the day. About 20 years later, a fellow called George Stokes developed the device further, by using metal as a case rather than wood, and for a piece of paper to be slotted in behind the glass sphere so that the sunlight would be burned onto the card 
which could then be easily swapped out, read, and stored. Far more easily than hundreds of wooden bowls with little brown lines on them. (laughs) What I love about inventions is when you talk about these things, it seems really obvious that card is a more efficient material to be using than wood. Mm -hmm. But at the time, this is true innovation. Oh, yeah. And so the wooden device was used at Greenwich, where Greenwich Mean Time comes from. So the observatory there and as high as Ben Nevis. So it was at the time, despite being wood and not paper, still a very influential and important invention. The Campbell Stokes recorders, as they're known today, are actually still in use at many meteorological stations around the world. Although as technology advances, they are being overtaken by more accurate technological instruments. But In Campbell's time, this was the height of meteorological equipment, and he was celebrated for it. I love the fact that we've got a Scottish man meticulously measuring how much sun he's getting and getting excited about every tiny peak through the clouds. (laughs) Yeah, I do think it probably comes from his deep, deep desire to see more sun. As a pale, pale (laughs) Scots person, I feel that in my soul. Do you think that John Francis Campbell's work as a full body, both the folklore and the science, still has relevance in the modern day? I think his scientific work is probably superseded, but it's still a good record and a very colourful and detailed record of the research as it stood at the time. It was very state-of-the-art, I think, what he did. And his his folklore collection obviously um, was pioneering in in Gaelic Scotland and preserved a lot of things which may not have survived otherwise. I would say his artwork needs special highlighting as well. I think that will that will last forever because it's so beautiful and so well done and and so lovingly painted. Agreed, and it enhances the folklore to then see the art, to see the Highlands and Islands. Absolutely. And when you see his paintings, maybe a painting of a loch, it's not just that the water is the correct colour, but it's also that you could very easily believe that there's a mermaid or a kelpie in there. There's a little element of magic to it, though he is just capturing the landscape. Yes, it's completely alive. Yes, you're right. (laughs) So if you find yourself wandering in a Highland Glen and then you bumped into John Francis Campbell, what would you say to him? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we all need to say thanks to him. Do you think that the exhibition and then the John Francis Campbell collection as a whole can help us understand the importance of keeping traditional storytelling alive? Yes, I think so, especially since he highlights how it was under threat. It may help people to appreciate it more. And also, we have recordings of Campbell's own stories, and there will be some events as well, some storytelling events, and it will show people what these stories were actually like and how how beautiful they were and how exciting in places. So I, I hope that it'll keep the interest alive. Is there a particular story in the John Francis Campbell collection that you feel particularly drawn to? 
it would be difficult to highlight any ones in particular. I, I liked one where there was a talking raven helping the hero of a story. And the raven, of course, was not a raven at all, but an enchanted human being. Unfortunately, I've forgotten the name, but these kind of stories interest me where there's a talking animal or an enchanted human being who has to act as an animal until it finds release from that state. Then there are some interesting ones which are very close to stories we know from the Brothers Grimm. There's one which is very similar to the Frog Prince and another one which is very similar to the Town Musicians of Bremen. I don't know if that's very well known here. It's about um, four elderly animals who get turfed out by their owners and then team up and scare a bunch of robbers out of their house and then live in it. And the Frog Prince, of course, is, is quite well known. So to find that these ones were also being told in the Gaelic-speaking highlands is slightly... They were different enough to make Campbell at least quite sure that there was a separate tradition. That it hadn't come in through the Brothers Grimm, but that there was a much older tradition through which it had come into the highlands. That makes them quite fascinating, I think. It's not just from German stories, but elements from Norse tales as well. So it's a whole mix of things. So I think on the whole, these stories are fascinating. I really enjoy the multi-animal story. It's about a lovely sheep, isn't it? Um, it's called the White Pet. The White Pet, yes. exactly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's quite funny in German as well. You know, the way they all stack on the, up, up on top of each other. We called it the stacked animal story when we were talking about the exhibit. <laughs> Instead of stacking animals in the John Francis Campbell version I've read, the animals all choose different parts of the house to sleep in. And what character from his folklore would you be? Probably a talking raven. <laughs> I feel like a talking raven is perfect for someone who works in the library because the ravens always come in to give you a bit of wisdom, right? So the wisdom I need right now is about visiting the library. It's free to visit and it's in the heart of Edinburgh. There's also a shop and a cafe inside. But what else is there to do nearby? Well, if I could just see, within the same building, there's also our treasures exhibition, which is currently going on, which highlights individual items from our collection from different categories of material. And it's being rotated every so often, so it's never quite the same. So that would be recommendable as well. Agreed. I love the treasures exhibition because that is the curators from every department who are showcasing some gems from the collections that they are custodians of. What type of objects could we expect to see? There's a nice medieval one at the moment, a 15th century manuscript of the Mirror of the Life of Christ, which is very nicely illuminated, worth a look. Illuminated, meaning that we have a vellum document that's got illustrations with real gold and intense colour pigments. Real gold and real colours, very, very colourful. Then there's a Burns, Robert Burns item is always in there. Then there's a Gutenberg Bible. Is there anything else in the area nearby to visit? Well, you, you would just have to go around the corner to Chamber Street and there's the National Museum of Scotland. The National Museum of Scotland in itself um, is highly interesting and shouldn't be missed. Whenever I'm in Edinburgh, I go around the National Library of Scotland galleries first and then I'll go and see the National Museum. That's how I get my big dose of Scottish heritage. 
What else do you like about the city? Yes, you could go up to the castle as well and the Camera Obscura is nice to visit. Okay, so I've got a silly question that we ask everyone and you're not getting out of it. (laughs) You're hosting a dinner party and you're allowed to invite three figures from Scottish history. They can be alive or dead. Who do you invite and why? I would actually choose John Francis Campbell. And I've always thought that even before you asked me this question, so I hope I get away with that. I would choose him because of his broad mind and because from, from his diaries and from the photographs I've seen of him, he must have been an awfully nice, interesting man, very humorous with a lot of banter in him. And my second person would be Mary of Guise, the mother of Mary, Queen of Scots, because I'm quite moved by the things she went through in her life as a mother, but also as a regent. You know, she had a terribly difficult time as a female ruler in Scotland, and yet she made a great job of it. And the third person is probably James IV of Scotland, the King of Scotland because of the court he kept and all the um, intellectuals and um, poets and other artists. He assembled around himself a lot of literary figures and musicians and he must have had a highly cultured court, which unfortunately was was cut short um, in 1513 after the Battle of Flodden. But he must have been an impressive man and a very scholarly figure as well. And what would you serve? Oh, I would maybe give them fish and a nice pudding. (laughs) Mm, Some lovely highland fish, maybe scallops, mussels, salmon. Highland, yes, salmon. (laughs) This sounds like a glorious meal. So just circling back to the exhibition, can you give me your takeaway thoughts on what the Skiol exhibition is trying to achieve? Well, we see it a bit as a celebration of the imagination, the powers of the imagination. And we, we have a, an area where people can read Gaelic stories or Scottish folk tales and listen to recordings of the Gaelic stories and English translations. And then we also see Campbell's artwork. So we hope that all this together will leave an impression of Scottish stories embedded in the Scottish landscape and community. So hopefully it will inspire people to take it further. Thank you so much for speaking to me today and also thank you so much for bringing out the Gaelic manuscripts to show me. As an archivist, I've worked with thousands upon thousands of documents, but I got such a special feeling when I saw the originals in the John Francis Campbell collection. I was so tremendously excited um, to read a story that I've never seen in print before in a beautiful cursive handwriting It's been such a special time for me, so thank you. When I first walked into the Skiol exhibition, the story exhibition, I noticed the sharp contrasts between the beauty of the bright watercolour paintings that had been blown up to become wall panels and the dark, dark space. Lit-up cabinets, like little will-o'-the-wisps, guided me from story to story. And I think the work of John Francis Campbell is one of such contradictions. To save oral storytelling, he began writing it down. 
which in itself is completely outside the tradition of what these stories are meant for. However, by recording the stories in this way, by writing them down, it means that the ones that were lost could then be rediscovered. It felt very reflective to sit and take time to engage with the interactive storytelling elements of the exhibition, just to listen. It made me reflect on our own practices as storytellers and as an audience as well. As Ulrika said, it made me think about how storytelling of the past is still just like driftwood. Perhaps it washes up on our modern day beach and challenges us to carry it into our futures. Myself and Jenny have pored over the books of John Francis Campbell to learn the old tales and their origins. And it was incredibly moving to see the manuscripts and art made by his own hands. My takeaway activity that I'm now planning after visiting the exhibition is to try landscape painting with things found in the environment. I reckon we could have a really fun day trip to paint a highland landscape with peat, just like John Francis Campbell. Or perhaps I'll start a little more humble by trying to paint the fairies that I suspect cause mischief in my garden, maybe using some squashed blackberries or their leaves that are taking over my vegetable patch. Either way, it's just another path to telling a story. I must admit, I'm going to be forever intrigued by the work of John Francis Campbell. Yeah, we use his books frequently, often finding exciting folklore with unexpected characters and connections. And I'm sure throughout the years, more than a few of the stories that he'd collected and translated into our podcast. Also, when I was in Edinburgh, the curator took out some of John Francis Campbell's original notes for me to look at. This was unpublished material. (gasps) And it was such a special moment for me. (laughs) My hands were actually trembling when I was looking at these original documents because I was I was looking at an absolutely spectacular handwritten story in its original Gaelic and it was actually recorded it was written down by a schoolmaster from 1850 and he had the most incredible just beautiful legible cursive script that I've ever seen I was in heaven when you came back, Annie, you were literally glowing. I almost got my Campbell Stokes recorder out to try and burn a bit. You know, like you were so happy. I was like, wow, Annie's really, really enjoyed that trip to the National Library. <laughs> I think a lot of the spellbinding stories of the Highlands and Islands have been preserved because of John Francis Campbell's collections in the National Library of Scotland. They are an incredibly precious and unique resource of international significance. Thank you so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. If you're in Edinburgh or Scotland at all, please do visit the exhibition in the National Library of Scotland. It's genuinely a wonderful experience to explore and their galleries are such a treasure. Until next time, Slanjava. Slanjava. Sancho Vol, Chiri and Drastic.